Some hospitals are banning spouses, partners, and any other guests from being inside delivery in postpartum rooms because of the coronavirus crisis. If you've ever given birth, you know it's terrifying and exhilarating at the same time, and you'd like to see familiar faces in there. 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. That is double last week's record report. When you get the call that you've been laid off, you know, I mean, that's difficult. Uh, you start to question, what's your future going to be? What are you going to do next? Today I'm moving out of Boston because I can't afford to live here. Hi, I'm Marquesa, and this is Conversations with Quesa. So today's episode is going to be all about our emotions during this crisis, how to manage grief specifically. And I'm going to be talking about mental health, tools and techniques to help help us move through these emotions, and all of that good stuff. I want to do something a little bit different this episode and give you guys short little tidbits leading into the main episode. I don't want to overwhelm you. I know we're all over the negative information in the news, although it's important and it's our reality, but I'm just going to hit you guys with the main points and continue on. One month ago, March 5th, there were 11 deaths total in the U.S. due to the coronavirus. Now, more than 9,654 people have died. The U.S. accounts for more than 337,000 of the 1.2 million cases of infected people reported worldwide. And remember, reported is the key word. There's been a federal recommendation from the CDC for everyone to wear cloth masks in public. Trump disavowed it, saying, quote, Somehow, I just don't see it for myself. I have links and stuff on my website, and you guys can, can see videos if you want. The coronavirus is overwhelming New York hospitals. According to Governor Cuomo, New York hospitals are, are counting on 85,000 healthcare volunteers, nearly 22,000 of which are from out of state. Five states are resisting calls for a stay-at-home order. These states are Arkansas, Iowa, Nebraska, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And they need to change that. Okay. The CIA warns that the drastic reduction in the number of cases and deaths in China, it's not to be trusted. So if the CIA, um, but well, basically I'll tell you guys what's happening. The CIA is, has information that China has lied about their numbers or certain bureaucrats in Wuhan have lied about those numbers. So, you know, take from that what you will. I don't know about you guys, but the past few weeks have been uh, a roller coaster of emotion for me. I mean, just one dichotomous giant bundle of peace and utter chaos, right? Acceptance and denial, anger, sadness, and then happiness, normalcy, and a freaking complete lack thereof. I have found myself towing this line of complete existential crisis breakdown, and attempted joyful avoidance. You know, thoughts of what is going on with the world? What am I doing with my life? Does it even matter? I'm going to say that again. Will it matter in the future? What is the future going to be like? And then conversely thoughts of, you know, today is really beautiful. I'm going to go enjoy the day outside by laying in the sun on the back patio Oh, and maybe later today, I'll learn how to make bread from scratch. P.S. you guys, I have done this. <laughs> I'm going to literally mill my own flour from wheat berries, and I'm really proud about that for some reason, even though I have not done it yet. This is like anticipatory uh, proudness, but that's beside the point. The point is, if you are anything like me, you've been teetering between being an innovative problem solver and completely succumbing to an anxious breakdown. All right, going about your isolated business, coming up with a new normal during the day, doing your podcast, doing your whatever, doing your articles, whatever else you're doing. And then at night, 
having an intermittent breakdown, okay? Or getting into explosive arguments with your sister for literally no reason three times in one day until you are both screaming at the top, top of your lungs at each other. Or fiercely fighting the good fight against misinformation on social media and then sometime after just freaking being done with it, feeling like you're completely done with everyone socially, you're over it, if they're gonna, if they're hell-bent on destroying the world, then oh well. I know it sounds silly, but these really are kind of normal emotions to be experiencing during a time like this. The way of life we've become so accustomed to has dramatically changed in so, so many ways. Many of the privileges that we've built our very society on have been compromised or completely removed. And this is jarring, hard to believe, hard to adhere to, and hard to make sense of. Our ability to be social in the ways we are used to has become threatened, and hopefully, in most cases, completely removed. You know, we can't just lollygag out at the bars, at the beaches, or for me, at the grocery store. Walking around anywhere, even if you live in a small secluded area, has elements of fear and confusion. It's not just a walk in the park anymore. And now it's laced with an undercurrent of, does that person have it? Is the wind going to like drift it my way? Is this six feet away? Okay, if she's on one side of the street, I'll go on the other. Is she crossing? I, okay, get, lady, get your dog. Right? And so on and so forth. And there's a gamut of other psychological things that's at play right now as well. If you're someone that has extreme aversion to attention and embarrassment, you might not have the emotional or mental fortitude to wear a mask, gloves, and eye protection publicly for fear of how people will react to you. You know, it might be embarrassing to have all of that attention. You might not want the attention caused by spraying every grocery item you buy with alcohol before you load it into your car. Yes, I do this. Many of our jobs have been compromised, and even our career fields. Our relationships have been affected. Our sense of security and comfort has been threatened. And the list goes on and on. Over the past weeks, I've seen a range of behaviors rise up in a subconscious effort to cope with all of the emotion and uncertainty that we're experiencing. On one end of the spectrum, some people are trying to circulate exclusively positive messages and disregard or even condemn anything less than. Meanwhile, others are trying to bring some normalcy back to the social media realm by attempting to create or partake in TikTok dances or create viral challenges. And then on the opposite end, some people are solely posting and sharing content surrounding the unfortunate aspects of the coronavirus. And then you got everyone else in between. Here are my thoughts on this. The healthy space of operating is right in the middle. Of course, Aristotle's golden mean, always. You have to pay attention to what is going on. You have to. But you don't have to steep yourself in it completely all day and night. You have to put forth genuine efforts towards contribution. And to me, this doesn't simply mean following the rules. Of course do that. This also means spreading awareness, contributing to conversations, and spreading thoughtful and educated messages. But you also don't have to spend all day every day battling on Facebook, no. Right now, watching or reading the news is a super bummer the majority of the time. But it's also our reality. A reality that we are shaping and continue to shape moment by moment, day by day, and week by week. And we won't have the ability to make educated decisions if we aren't, in fact, educated. And that requires, it commands you to go out, seek credible sources, and learn what's going on. Because again, we are shaping this thing. It's not something we're reviewing from the past. It's your duty to pay attention and to contribute positively. Before watching or reading the news, guys, I too, okay? I too have to go through a sort of mental yoga, getting my mind ready to hear about what, mostly unfortunate, things have unfolded since my last visit. 
And don't even get me started on social media, okay? Before logging into social media, particularly Facebook, I feel like I have to throw on my armor, fortify my psyche in preparation for the imminent frustration and confusion that is going to result from uninformed people just spewing conspiracies and irrational thoughts that pop into their mind at the moment. But I do want to take a moment to mention again, this is our reality right now, for better or for worse. And the answer is not to completely ignore it, nor is it to stay steeped in it for too long. Both can be highly problematic for our well-being. Therefore, my aim is to shed some light on what emotions we may all be feeling and experiencing right now in an effort to redirect us back to a space of comfort and understanding. But before I get into the main portion of this podcast, which Alfred mentioned I, I said was grief, I want to mention a short note about two things, fear-mongering and politics. As much as I've heard people call out news stations for fear-mongering, I have to largely disagree, okay? Fear-mongering is the spread of exaggerated rumors of impending danger in order to arouse fear in an effort to manipulate the public. Of course, there are, you know, news stations and online sources that are doing this, but most of the main sources are not. I'm talking NPR, I'm talking um, the journal Science, I'm talking um, New York Times, Washington Post, even CNN. Um, you know, they're simply reporting the news. And the current state of global affairs happens to be that we are experiencing a pandemic globally that virtually none of us were adequately prepared for in almost any capacity interpersonally, psychologically, physically, financially, socially, none of it. And this pandemic happens to affect all areas of our lives. It is a political issue. It is an economic issue. It is a social and cultural issue. It is a religious issue, etc., etc. So all of this makes the reality unfortunate and the future uncertain. Those are facts, not exaggerated rumors, simply facts. And these facts are important to be aware of because we have the ability to change the trajectory of what is happening and to respond accordingly. But we can't do that if we don't have the proper information. And we can't do that if we aren't honest with ourselves. So that's my comment about fear-mongering. The other point that I'll touch on briefly, very briefly, is politics. As I mentioned, this is a political issue. You can't tease the coronavirus apart from politics. They are one in the same. Politics is essentially everything. It's what we define as a crisis. It's how we respond to it. It's where resources are allocated. And ultimately, we have elected people on our behalf to make those decisions. And if we didn't consider that, then we made a grave mistake. And if we did consider it and decided that economic interest takes precedence over public health, something Trump has supported time and again, well, then buckle up. Because now we get to feel the ramifications of our decisions. And truthfully, this has been a reality for many of the less fortunate Americans for some time to some degree. Now it's just on a wider scale. Now the largely previously unaffected, can we say the top 1%, are feeling it. Okay, that's my note on politics. So without further ado, let's get into it, okay? And this episode starts out a little bit sad, but there's intention, so stick through it. Last year... I lost my best friend of 17 years, and it changed my life forever. At the same time, I was diagnosed with a bothersome, incurable eye condition that may render me blind later in life. At that very same time, my father was going through rounds of chemotherapy and surgery for cancer on his face. During this time, I felt utterly lost, confused, angry, sad, unmotivated, scared, and even numb. 
I was all over the board. I couldn't make sense of everything that was happening. My perception of reality had shifted to a degree I had never experienced before. Some really basic comforts had been stripped from me, and no matter what I did, I couldn't change the current reality. I knew I didn't want to be stagnant, steeping in emotions past a helpful space, or as I say, past their best-by date. So I empowered myself through education and understanding. During this time, I did what I usually do when I'm feeling less than optimal. I sought advice and information. I actually enrolled in a medical neuroscience class offered by Duke University. I submersed myself in information about psychology, emotions, and personality. I wanted to learn more about what feelings I was experiencing, why, and how I could grow myself through these emotions. I wanted to return to a more comfortable mindset. And throughout all of this research, the one emotion I wound up arriving at was grief. Fast forward to today, and I believe this is the same emotion we are all experiencing in varying capacities and degrees right now. It's grief. Now I want to pause here, because I know what you're thinking, right? I don't want to hear about anything negative right now. I'm already overwhelmed with the current state of our world. Give me the TikTok and trivializing distractions. Trust me, I feel you. And I love to dance probably more than anyone you know. But this podcast is aimed at attempting to identify the range of emotions we are feeling so that we can ultimately grow through them. I think a lack of emotional and psychological understanding can lead us to feelings of overwhelm and chaos. So in an effort to mitigate the unhealthy or unhelpful ramifications of those feelings, let's consider the first step. Identifying what we are feeling, perhaps, as grief. You are not crazy. You are not out of your mind. You might just be processing the fact that we are going through something that dramatically affects the way we have been living our lives up until this point. You might just be adjusting to a new reality. You might just be responding to the open-ended uncertainty. And you likely are grieving many losses. Be kind to yourself as you traverse this new realm. I recently read a Harvard Business Review article about managing grief in which the team at HBR extrapolated main points from an interview they had with death and grieving expert David Kessler. According to HBR, he is, quote, the world's foremost expert on grief. Kessler has worked for a decade in a three-hospital system in Los Angeles. He served on their biohazards team, his volunteer work includes being an LAPD specialist reserve for traumatic events, as well as having served on the Red Cross's disaster services team. He is the founder of Grief.com, which has over 5 million visits yearly from 167 countries, end quote. And I'm going to add in a couple more things from that. He's, of course, written and published books on grieving and grief with other experts and just his own personal story. So you guys know when he was a child... He witnessed a mass shooting at a school, he, and that was at the same time that his mother was dying, I believe, of cancer. And then, a little bit later in life, his 21-year-old son died. So, you know, when I say expert, I mean this guy is damn near the king of loss and grieving. I'm talking about his both anecdotal personal experience and what he's done with his life. And I've actually come across Kessler in my own independent research over the years many times, by the way. So if there's someone that understands the range of grief we are all experiencing right now, it's that dude. All right. It's Kessler. So what I want to do 
is give an overview of what was said, expand on the points, and then add some of my own thoughts and analyses. According to Kessler, we are all experiencing a number of different griefs right now. Quote, We feel the world has changed, and it has. We know this is temporary, but it doesn't feel that way. And we realize things will be different. Just as going to the airport is forever different from how it was before 9-11, things will change, and this is the point at which they changed. The loss of normalcy, the fear of economic toll, the loss of connection, this is hitting us and we're grieving collectively. We're not used to this kind of collective grief in the air." End quote. He goes on to mention that there are many types of grief, one of which is anticipatory grief. He explains, quote, anticipatory grief is that feeling we get about, the fu- about what the future holds when we're uncertain. Usually it centers on death. We feel it when someone gets a dire diagnosis or when we have the normal thought that we'll lose a parent someday. Anticipatory grief is also more broadly imagined futures. There's a storm coming. There's something bad out there. And with a virus, this kind of grief is so confusing for people. Our primitive mind knows something bad is happening, but you can't see it. This breaks our sense of safety. We're feeling that loss of safety. I don't think we've collectively lost our senses of general safety like this. Individually, or as smaller groups, people have felt this, but altogether, this is new. We are grieving on a micro and a macro level. End quote. A really basic way to understand grief is by defining it simply as a response to loss. So whatever gamut of emotions that arise, in addition to the reactions we have to those emotions, as a result of loss, that is grief. And there are really common, socially accepted examples of loss that we are all aware of, like job loss, death of a loved one, physical loss, relationship loss, loss due to trauma. But what is less talked about is the ripple effect caused by this primary loss. You know, the items stack on top of one another. This is also referred to as cumulative loss in psychology, by the way. There are subsequent losses that occur as a result of the primary loss. So imagine a row of dominoes all set up, right? The primary loss could be regarded as the first domino to fall, knocking over each one of the succeeding dominoes. This is why it can quickly feel like your whole life is in shambles. Primary losses are the first losses that occur setting off the secondary losses. It's not that secondary losses, by the way, are any less meaningful, difficult, or potent. It's just that they either emerge from or are a consequence of the primary loss itself. So, for example, a primary loss might be the, lo- the death of a partner, and a series of secondary losses might include financial loss, loss of identity, loss of emotional security, loss of your home, and the list goes on. And in terms of the virus, the cumulative losses we are all experiencing both personally and globally, those are extensive. So it only makes sense that we might all be experiencing grief and going through different stages of the grieving process, and I'll get into this later. In terms of the coronavirus, The primary loss, that's going to be different for each person depending on how they perceive things. But I'll give you guys a few examples of losses that you may be grieving right now and you didn't even know it. Loss of your job. Loss of a loved one. Loss of freedom. Loss of hopes, dreams, and expectations. That's a big one. Loss of safety. Loss of emotional and financial security, loss of identity, loss of companionship, loss of purpose, loss of liberty, loss of autonomy. Here's an example of, you know, less usual types of loss, right? This one's personal. My sister is currently somewhere around six months pregnant. Considering that one realm just that one specific aspect of her life, she's experiencing a range of losses. You know, that includes 
loss of her baby shower and reveal party, thereby losing her deposit and money she put down for the venue. Um, loss of companionship. It's highly probable that she won't be able to have anyone in the hospital nor delivery room with her as she delivers her baby, including her family, including her husband, and including a doula. Loss of safety. Loss of emotional security. And most, and not most importantly, but a big one is the loss of the dream of all of those things she had in her mind. And I feel like that is so downplayed and disregarded in our society. Loss of the hopes, dreams, and expectations. That's a big deal. And this is only, by the way, one of the many examples that may not be obvious to most. Most. There are so many things that have changed and are continuing to change as a result of the losses associated with the coronavirus. So now that we've identified what losses are and how we might be experiencing them, we can progress onto how to manage them in a healthy way. But before I go any further, I need to mention this. You can use this information to empower yourself or you can use it to let yourself off of the hook and lead you in a direction that's ultimately unhelpful. And this is probably always going to be the case, you guys. You can either use it to help you out or you can use it to kind of clip your own wings. You see, there's an inherent power that can result from identifying or labeling what we are feeling. It might go like this. Now that I know what grief is and what losses I might be experiencing at this moment, I'm better equipped to move through them in a healthy way. But on the opposite end, there's also the risk of latching onto a label and using that to absolve yourself from taking accountability, responsibility, and moving towards a better space. And that would go something like this. I've been receiving a lot of validation and reduced expectations because I called out my grief and losses. I should steep myself in this as long as possible because then I won't have to take accountability and responsibility. I can use it as a scapegoat to let myself off the hook and gain sympathy, love, and attention. And I crave that stuff. People rarely consciously draft those thoughts, by the way, but that really is what can happen. I've observed and read about this a lot when it comes to depression, anxiety, and addiction. And I'm not discounting these very real emotional experiences. They are real. I'm simply calling attention to how we use those labels, why, and if it's in our best interest. So know that it's not only perfectly okay, but it's expected to be grieving these losses. It's a very primal human response. Also, it's okay to be grieving whatever it is that you are grieving. You don't need to prove its worthiness to anyone. Which leads me to my next point. Disenfranchised grief. Recognizing loss as it is, is instrumental in being able to move through grief and solve problems. Conversely, if loss isn't recognized both internally and externally, it can hinder growth. The reason I want to expand on this more is because you might feel, either currently or sometime in the future, a lack of support externally if you express your grief or if you express your losses. And I want to remind you, loss isn't something that needs to be qualified or quantified by the measure of others. No, and it shouldn't be. What I mean is, if you regard something as a big loss in your own life, and others don't, you know, don't feel bad about it or try to reduce what you are feeling. Your loss exists. Your feelings exist, whether others validate them or not. So, you know, in our, our modern society, we have social rules or dictates that all of us live by. And if you fall somewhere outside of those boundaries of what society has deemed as okay, then you can be subject to disregard and minimization of what you are experiencing. If people are saying, you know, you have no right to grieve, or you're grieving in the wrong way, or you're grieving for the wrong length of time, it can feel even more challenging to seek support and to move through it. Dr. Ken Doka, grief expert and licensed mental health counselor, came up with the term called disenfranchised grief. 
and it essentially defines a lack of recognition from either the person experiencing the grief or from others. It's this concept of the social rules, you know, surrounding who is entitled to grief. This is basically depriving someone the right to grieve a loss. And if you grieve over socially accepted things in socially accepted ways, well, that's great. You'll receive support, acknowledgement, and validation. But if you don't, keep it pushing, sucka, and stop posting about it because we don't value it. According to Menashe University in Australia, unrecognized losses, quote, can be isolating and induce powerlessness rather than the problem solving that's needed to reduce the psychological pain, end quote. So I want to review five key kind of main points to tie it all together here. One, you are likely experiencing loss right now and probably actually many different losses at the same time. Two, it might be helpful to label those losses. Three, resist the urge to minimize your grief based on social dictates. Four, resist the urge to exaggerate your grief based on social validation. And five, understand that emotions are transitory by nature. This too shall pass. The six stages of grief. When Harvard Business Review asked David Kessler what we can all do to manage our grief, he responded, quote, Understanding the stages of grief is a start. But whenever I talk about the stages of grief, I have to remind people that the stages aren't linear and may not happen in this order. It's not a map but it provides some scaffolding for this unknown world. There's denial, which we say a lot of early on. This virus won't affect us. There's anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my activities? There's bargaining. Okay, if I social distance for two weeks, everything will be better, right? There's sadness. I don't know when this will end. And finally, there's acceptance. This is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed. End quote. It's commonly accepted that there are five main stages of grief, and recently Kessler suggested a sixth stage. Um, and I not only agree with the sixth stage, but I deeply respect it. So in my eyes, there really are six stages. The first is denial. This virus won't affect me. This virus won't affect us, right? The second is anger. You're making me stay home and taking away my activities? Who's to blame? The third is bargaining. Okay. If I social distance for two weeks, everything will be better, right? Four, depression. I don't know when this will end. I'm too sad to do anything. Five, acceptance. This is happening. I have to figure out how to proceed. And six, meaning. I will allow this experience to inspire and motivate me towards being a positive influence on the world in some way. Those are my words, not his. Um... Just as Kessler mentioned, it's important to understand that this process is not linear. So it's unlikely that you'll just glide through each step seamlessly until you reach the end point, you know, the sixth step, and then you'll park there forever and your work is done, boom, boom, never grieve again. <laughs> That's generally not how anything in life works as much as we want it to. My personal experience has led me to understand that I bounce all over the place, and it feels like it's rarely done. You know, and I might even argue that even when you reach stage five or six, you'll still drift back into the other stages from time to time. Rather than rein uh, reinvent the wheel, <laughs> rather than reinvent the wheel, I'm going to include some information, little short blurbs about each of the five, well, six stages of the grieving process from Kessler's website, grief.com. Um, and that'll explain each stage and what to ex expect. And by the way, he has a host of information on his website. So if you want to know more about anything to do with grief, he will have it on his website. And that's grief.com. And before I get into this, let me stretch my leg, which is going numb because I'm sitting curled up like a freaking curly cue on the floor of my closet while I record this. Okay, so the reason I want to um, 
really explain these five stages of grief are so that everyone can know what to expect. And perhaps you're in one of these stages right now. Perhaps you've traversed through them. Perhaps you've touched in and out. And it might provide a little perspective to what you're experiencing. Stage one, denial. Denial is the first of the five stages of grief. It helps us to survive the loss. In this stage, the world becomes meaningless and overwhelming. Life makes no sense. We are in a state of shock and denial. We go numb. We wonder how we can go on, if we can go on, and why we should go on. We try to find a way to simply get through each day. Denial and shock help us to cope and make survival possible. Denial helps us pace our feelings of grief. There is a certain grace in denial. It's nature's way of letting in only as much as we can handle. As you accept the reality of the loss and start to ask yourself questions, you are unknowingly beginning the healing process. You are becoming stronger and the denial is beginning to fade. But as you proceed, all of the feelings you were denying, those begin to surface. And now we get into stage two, anger. And as someone who was yelling at the top of her lungs in front of the neighbor's house at my sister on the phone, I think I've handled this one. Check in the box, people. Marlena, I love you. I'm sorry. Okay. Anger is a necessary stage of the healing process. Be willing to feel your anger, even though it may seem endless. The more you truly feel, the more it will begin to dissipate and the more you will heal. There are many other emotions under the anger, and you'll get to them in time, but anger is the emotion that we are most used to managing. The truth is that anger has no limits. It can extend not only to your friends, the doctors, your family, yourself, and your loved one who died, but also to God. You may ask, where is God in all of this? And I'm going to sub in my own thing to a deity, to the universe, to whatever you want. Okay, back to the point. Underneath anger is pain. Your pain. It's natural to feel deserted and abandoned. But we live in a society that fears anger. Anger can be strength. And it can be an anchor, giving temporary structure to the nothingness of loss. At first, Grief feels like being lost at sea, no connection to anything. Then you get angry at someone, maybe a person who didn't attend a funeral, maybe a person who isn't around, maybe a person who is different now that your loved one has, has passed. Suddenly, you have structure, your anger toward them. The anger becomes a bridge over the open sea, a connection from you to them. It's something to hold on to. And a connection made from the strength of anger feels better than nothing. We usually know more about suppressing anger than feeling it. And I have to stop here, guys. Um, he has one more sentence left, but I have to add a preface before it because it's super dangerous just left alone by itself without, you know, the subsequent explanation that I'm going to include. This was uh, the last quote for the second step of the grieving process anger. This is what he said, quote, the anger is just another indication of the intensity of your love. Yikes, guys. Oh my gosh. Logic would indicate this is not a healthy thing to do, all right? Getting super mad, getting mad at all, and reacting, lashing out, acting on that anger, and directing it towards another person. You know, justifying being angry and lashing out at people to prove your love for them, yikes, I have to say it again, that doesn't work. That is unhealthy. And it sets up all of these little psychological issues that compound on each other and really affect people. And just as a quick little explanation, it might be something like, I'm so... My my anger is justified because I love you, and that's why I react this way. And the other person will say, wow, okay, well, this person must really love me. And if you really love me, then you're going to really get mad all the time, and you're going to whatever. And that 
behavior is justified because you're super passionate and you love me. So doesn't work, guys. Let's not have that happen. But that is the second stage. So let's move on to the third stage, okay? The third stage of grief, bargaining. Before a loss, it seems like you will do anything if your loved one would be spared. Quote, please God, you bargain. I will never be angry at my wife again if you just let her live. After a loss, bargaining may take the form of a temporary truce. You know, what if I devote the rest of my life to helping others? Then can I wake up and realize this has all been a bad dream? We become lost in a maze of if only or what if statements. We want life returned to what was. We want our loved one restored. We want to go back in time, find the tumor sooner, recognize the illness more quickly, stop the accident from happening. If only, if only, if only. Guilt is often bargaining's companion. The if-onlys cause us to find fault in ourselves and what we think we could have done differently. We may even bargain with the pain itself. We will do anything not to feel the pain of this loss. We remain in the past, trying to negotiate our way out of the hurt. People often think of the stages as lasting weeks or months. They forget that the stages are responses to feelings that can last for minutes or hours as we flip in and out of one and then another. We don't enter and leave each individual stage in a linear fashion. We may feel one, then another, and back again, and then to the first one. Stage four of grief, depression. After bargaining, our attention moves squarely into the present. Empty feelings present themselves, and grief enters into our lives on a deeper level, deeper than we ever imagined. This depressive stage feels as though it will last forever. It's important to understand that this depression is not a sign of mental illness. It is the appropriate response to a great loss. We withdraw from life, left in a fog of intense sadness, wondering perhaps if there is any point in going on alone. Why go on at all? Depression after a loss is too often seen as unnatural, a state to be fixed, something to snap out of. The first question to ask yourself is whether or not the situation you're in is actually depressing. The loss of a loved one is a very depressing situation, and depression is a normal and appropriate response. To not experience depression after a loved one dies would be unusual. When a loss fully settles in your soul, the realization that your loved one didn't get better this time and is not coming back is understandably depressing. If grief is a process of healing, then depression is one of the many necessary steps along the way. And now we move to phase, phase, stage, stage five of grief, acceptance. Acceptance is often confused with the notion of being all right or okay with what has happened. This is not the case. Most people don't ever feel okay or all right about the loss of a loved one. This stage is about accepting the reality that our loved one is physically gone and recognizing that this new reality is the permanent reality. I have to pause here again because he says he says something that I flagrantly disagree with. Um, but I'll, you know what? I'll add my qualification at the end. And I will add a little addendum. We may never like this reality or make it okay, but eventually we accept it. We learn to live with it in the new norm with which we must go. We must learn to live. We must try to live now in a world where our loved one is missing. In resisting this new norm, at first, many people want to maintain life as it was before a loved one died. In time, through bits and pieces of acceptance, however, we see that we cannot maintain the past intact. It has been forever changed and we must readjust. We must learn to reorganize roles, reassign them to others, or take them on ourselves. Finding acceptance may be just having more good days than bad ones. As we begin to live again and enjoy our life, we often feel that in doing so, we are betraying our loved one. We can never replace what has been lost, but we can make new connections, new meaningful relationships, new interdependencies. Instead of denying our feelings, we listen to our needs, we move, 
we change, we grow, we evolve. We may start to reach out to others and become involved in their lives. We invest in our friendships and in our relationship with ourselves. We begin to live again, but we cannot do so until we have given grief its time. That was the end of his, his stage five, and remember, we're deciding to add a stage six, but before I get into it, I have to add this. So, he had mentioned, let me go back to it, he actually quote said, we will never like this reality or make it okay, but we eventually accept it, and flagrantly disagree with that. Uh, it would seem to make sense that you would want to lead a life that is okay with all circumstances, including the death of a loved one, even though this may be challenging. So be careful how you speak to yourself. You know, if you say things like, quote, I will never get over this. I will never be okay. Versus, quote, and please say this instead, it may be a great challenge to get over this, but I will be okay. And I love life regardless of the circumstances. Remember, when it comes to your mind, your wish is your command. And that's not some woo-woo garbage. That is a psychological uh, studied behavior. If you think it, you will find a way to make it so. Your mind will look for supporting evidence. We have things like heuristics and these mental shortcuts that make us latch onto an idea and then we strive to support that, uh, a belief or a cognition. I want to say this. It is unkind and damn dangerous to adopt a philosophy that would be even remotely close to martyr syndrome of... You know, I need to be extremely sad, depressed, angry, because it's directly proportional to how much I love this person, or to how much I loved my life before this event happened. You loved your life when this person or this event was one way, and now you need to love your life without the person or event. You owe it to yourself to love your life regardless of the circumstances, okay? Sorry to get stern with you guys, but that is like so important. It's so important. Okay, now, um, the sixth stage of grief, meaning. So he doesn't have an explanation on his website because he wrote a book on it. Um, and admittedly, I haven't read his new book, which is called Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. But I've already drafted my own thoughts on this sixth stage of the grieving process. You know, I feel that after we move through the stage of acceptance, we might find that we are motivated and inspired to rise above and to channel that energy in a meaningful way. An example might be the man who lost his parents at a young age, but he found meaning in creating a center for children who have lost their parents. Or it's the woman who lost her job and experienced homelessness she might establish a home for women who are homeless, or, 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 or. I mean, the list goes on and on. So if we are open to it, I firmly believe we have the power and ability to draw strength and meaning from loss. That's not to say we should say, this is a test and I had to go through this to learn. I think that borders irrational selfishness and that could be problematic in the future. You know, that's the, i.e., people had to die for me to learn a lesson. That doesn't work. But to say, this happened, I can't change the circumstances, I have accepted it, and now I can use it to motivate and inspire me to be a positive influence on the world in some way. That, that's an honest and really healthy way of looking at things. My foot is falling asleep. Okay. Ways to help cope with loss. When Scott Bernardo of the Harvard Business Journal was discussing the symptoms we may feel during grief, such as racing mind or physical pain, Kessler gave tips on how to manage these by stating, quote, Let's go back to anticipatory grief. Unhealthy anticipatory grief is really anxiety, and that's the feeling you're talking about. Our mind begins to show us images. Parents getting sick. We see the worst scenarios. That's our minds being protective. 
Our goal is not to ignore those images or try to make them go away. Your mind won't let you do that, and it can be painful to try and force it. The goal is to find balance in the things you're thinking. If you feel the worst image taking shape, make yourself think of the best image. We all get a little sick and the world continues. Not everyone I love dies. Maybe no one does because we're all taking the right steps. Neither scenario should be ignored, but neither should dominate either. Anticipatory grief is the mind going to the future and imagining the worst. To calm yourself, you want to come into the present. This will be familiar advice to anyone who has meditated or practiced mindfulness, but people are always surprised at how prosaic this can be. You can name five things in a room. There's a computer, a chair, a picture of a dog, an old rug, and a coffee mug. It's that simple. Breathe. Realize that in the present moment, nothing you've anticipated has happened. In this moment, you're okay. You have food. You are not sick. Use your senses and think about what they feel. The desk is hard. The blanket is soft. I can feel the breath coming into my nose. This really will work to dampen some of that pain. You can also think about how to let go of what you can't control. What your neighbor is doing is out of your control, but what is in your control is staying six feet away from them and washing your hands. Focus on that. Finally, it's a good time to stock up on compassion. Everyone will have different levels of fear and grief, and it manifests in different ways. A coworker got very snippy with me the other day, and I thought, that's not like this person. That's how they're dealing with this. I am seeing their fear and anxiety. So be patient. Think about who someone usually is and not who they seem to be in this moment. End quote. The best things you can do to manage these emotions are one, acknowledge your emotions and pain. Two, do the best you can with what you have and what you know in this moment, and then accept the range of emotions that may arise. Three, understand your grieving process may be completely unique to you. Four, support yourself emotionally and take care of yourself physically. Five, be kind to yourself. Treat yourself like you would a best friend. Six, Seek support for grief and loss. And I have a ton of resources on my website. I haven't published that article yet, but I will probably in the next two days. Uh, a little, a little, this isn't the last point, but it's an important point. From everything I've read just about ever, it's really important not to isolate yourself during your grieving process. Even if you aren't someone who is used to or comfortable with sharing your feelings with others in regular circumstances, it can be really important to express them when you're grieving. Um, quote, this is a time to overprotect, but not overreact. David Kessler. Remember guys, emotions move through us. They're not permanent. So even though things may feel emotionally untethered, that's okay. Emotions are transitory and they'll move through and others will arrive in their place. Be compassionate and understanding as much as you have the ability to. Reach out for support if you need it. You know, there's a trove of, like I said, free online and virtual resources for you to communicate directly with someone that you don't know. Um, it can be anonymous, and I'll, I'll touch on some of those in the end of this. There is a wonderful, balanced, shining light amidst all of this confusion. And that is the anxiousness of all things related to grief. It's created by the human mind. And the degree that it's created by your mind is exactly equal and an example of the degree that you have the ability to have your mind correct it as well. That got a little wordy, but I'll explain. These things are equal. So you've demonstrated it to yourself that you have the ability to make yourself anxious because of the coronavirus or a friend's death. And that is an example 
of the degree of the power that your mind has to also imagine other things that aren't anxiety inducing. You know, grief comes from the mind. We can quite literally create and induce panic attacks. That's pretty powerful. We can create that. And that means we also have the same amount of power, that same ability to channel it in the opposite direction. The direction of love, support, positive energy, and good feelings. As a final note, I wanted to bring up grief and grieving resources. I have something you can do right now, and I'll give you about, you know, a couple of seconds after, um, and practice it whenever you want, but I call it the K-Love test. Uh, this is something my dad created, I believe. How many positive words can you string together in one minute? That's it. Just ask yourself that question whenever you feel like it, but I like to do it if I am in a less than optimal mood. So how many positive words can you string together in a minute? And the act of searching for those positive words will bring up experiences. So it's not the words themselves, it's the act of searching for the words. You are searching for the experiences that shaped those words in your mind. Um, and that's what's going to inspire the good feelings and point you back towards the direction. And it might not happen at first, but it does happen. The second is um, mindful visualization therapy. So I've recorded my version of guided visualization therapy. And this took me a really long time to write and to create in totality. So if you don't like it, for whatever reason, say it privately behind my back like a decent human being. Okay, guys, don't say it to my face. What prompted me to create this was one, the current circumstances we find ourselves in, and two, for as long as I can remember, my father used to run through these visualization relaxation therapy exercises with my sisters and I growing up. Of course, we didn't realize it at the time, but he would construct these stories of peaceful settings during bedtime to help us relax and go to sleep peacefully. Sometimes he would run through the exercises with us during the day if we were particularly anxious or stressed about something. And I can honestly say this is one of the most potent things you can do for yourself to relax during any time, but especially during a time like this. It may seem silly at first, it may seem unusual, it may seem awkward, but I can guarantee you that if you give in and try out the process genuinely, you will benefit more than you realize after finishing it. To get started with this practice, my suggestion would be to find a comfortable place, isolate yourself from any distractions, and quietly listen. This is going to be on my YouTube, and if you guys go to my website, you can see it, but you can also just type in Marquesa Schroeder and for, on YouTube, and that's going to be my YouTube channel, and you'll see it there. And I don't know how long it is, but I'm thinking it's probably going to be around... 10 or 15 minutes and I know that sounds like a long time but plug in earphones or um, set your phone next to you and listen to it quietly and yeah you can do it whenever you want throughout the day and remember please send any questions or comments you have about this or any other episode um, so as promised I'm going to touch on a couple additional grief resources and most of these came from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and I have all the links on my website. But just if you're if you're trying to remember from what I verbalize, one, seven cups. From what I understand, sevencups.com is a resource for emotional support. So you can text anonymously and a trained listener will respond, support, and counsel you. And I believe there, this is a free-for-service agreement, and it's available in Spanish and in English. And that's called 7cups.com. Um, another, another group are emotionsanonymous.com. There's Support Group Central. There is The Tribe, and these are all free online communities. And some of them are peer-to-peer. -peer, some of them are, um, some of them do cost something, but it's super low cost. And I think that's good. I think I'm going to end there for this podcast. It's already been an hour, as everyone knows, which is super long. But thank you guys for listening. And remember, isolating alone can be problematic. 
So, you know, I understand that if you live alone, if you whatever, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reach out to the people you care about. Reach out to any of the resources that I've mentioned online. We have social media. We have Zoom. We have all of these all of these apps, all of these things with which we can connect with people without physically being in their presence. Utilize those things. And remember, you will get through this.